Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, and we have a very special episode with my dear friend, Eddie Yoon. He's the author of the incredible book, Super Consumers, and he's most well-known as being the category creation, category design guru to the Fortune 500. As a matter of fact, he's written more on category creation for Harvard Business Review than anyone else. And I am um, stoked that Eddie and I have become friends and collaborators. Uh, And between you and me, uh, he and I are writing a new book together, and we're very excited about that. Uh, Stay tuned. What we want to do on this episode is Eddie, myself, and our dear friend Nicholas Cole just wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review titled The Difference Between a First Mover and a category creator. And so Eddie and I thought it would be fun if uh, we got together to sort of uh, unearth some of the thinking behind the article. Um, You can check out our show notes for this episode on lockhead.com to read the actual article itself. And I'd also, in the conversation, ask you to pay special attention to um, our discussion around the power of a data flywheel when trying to create and dominate a category and the incredible new primary research that Eddie has done for this article and from our our new book that underscores the fact that category queens with a data flywheel are five times more valuable than other comparable high-growth companies. So listen closely for that. Now, my friends at NetSuite, they're the category queens of cloud business systems, uh, and They want to offer you an opportunity to see a free demo of how NetSuite can power the growth of your business and give you the free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. Check out netsuite.com slash different today to get your free guide and set up your demo. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the category queens of big data. That's because Splunk helps you bring data to everything, every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's splunk.com slash D2E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed on Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. Eddie Yoon. My friend, Christopher. (laughs) It's so great to see you. Always a pleasure, my friend. So the difference between a first mover and a category creator. Now, I know why I, I wanted to write this with you, but why, why do you think even from that headline is important? You know, I think uh, back to our earliest conversations about just for as much excitement there is about category creation and category design, there's seems like a commensurate amount of disinformation or misunderstanding about it. And I think it's, you know, it, I don't know, frustration, maybe <laughs> just people saying, if you're first to make to the market, then therefore you, you've created the category. And, you know, some of it may just be around the languaging of it. I, I think the desire to put more meat on the bones and separate out the truth from uh, fake news, as it were. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think uh, I, I started to really feel this looking at the food delivery wars, you know, Grubhub and Uber Eats and DoorDash. And, you know, it, it's just, the amount of capital that's being wasted 
trying to become number one from a market share perspective on the premise, the false premise that if I get to be, uh, if I get there first, I will be able to stay there. And I just think not only are they being misled and, you know, you see the rise and fall of WeWork and the like, where companies that are in this relentless pursuit of being first, um, employees are going to get burned. Uh, investors are going to get burned versus, you know, let's think about how to actually build uh, sustainable advantages that a category queen enjoys. And, and that, that's the part that I, I just see it everywhere and um, makes me frustrated that, uh, and I, I, think, I think hopeful that the people can take that energy that's being misdirected towards being first um, to building that flywheel. Yeah. And so, you know, this has been a, a long frustration for me and it underscores the problem with the thinking. First mover equals category creator. Well, no. First mover by most people's definition is first to have a product, not first to get product, company, and category, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing, of course, we focus on in this, this HBR article is first to get as a result of getting product company and category right, radical differentiation, yeah. they get this thing called a data flywheel moving. And based on the data flywheel, they have more knowledge, more insight, more actionable data on what works and doesn't work than anyone else. And they get that flywheel spinning and all of a sudden they become uncatchable. And so it frustr it's frustrated me forever that people conflate with having the first product to being the first to educate the world to think in the way we want and then open the world up to new ideas, new approaches, new possibilities, new problems. And then as a result of having a legendary product company and category, building that flywheel. Totally, totally. And, and, and I think it, you know, at, at the core of, you know, when we wrote this, you know, ton of analysis we did, ton of back and forth on, you know, the, the thinking and the logic, but I, I always come back to what, you know, you and I have long talked about of this idea of, you know, what's your motivation for creating a new category? Are you a missionary or mercenary? And I think the, the mercenaries of the world, they look at category creation and category design. They see the economics and they're like, well, I want that. And they're trying to shortcut what is the fastest way to get to 76% of the category market cap or the valuation that's there. And what's so fascinating is that it's the, the missionaries, the people who are like, you know, yeah, I, I obviously I care about the great product and service that I've created, but I, I care more about that the category is screwed up and is not the way that it should be or could be. And sometimes uh, when that bar is that much higher about what the category could and should be, then you very quickly get to the realization that maybe a silver bullet isn't the right answer. Like there's not going to be an amazing product without an amazing company. And frankly, um, just because you've done that uh, doesn't mean that you can rest on your laurels. You need to know where the category is headed. And I, I think that's where a lot of the big data hubbub is really missed is what's the point of it? it the point is to predict the future about where the category is going so that you can continue to be that missionary to bring uh, the category as it should be to the most amount of people so that it helps the most amount of people. It gets in that not only radical differentiation you talked about, but that transformational outcome and that radical generosity that is really behind it all there. So that, that's what I think is um, at the core of it, that missionary versus mercenary part. Well, and to some people, this might sound like, uh, you know, you're a left coast do-gooder, whatever type individual. Yeah. And, you know, 
you grew up in Hawaii, and so maybe you have a more, uh, I don't know, in tune, do-gooder in you maybe because <laughs> of that. I don't know. But here's what I love. To the best of my knowledge, you, sir, are the first uh, thinker in this area to actually do data science research. Uh, and I think that's how I first found you is based on your HBR article back in, I think it was 2011, if I'm not mistaken. And so what, what, and I say we here, and when I say we, I mean you, <laughs> what we have done here in this new article, no, no, you, no. <laughs> you updated a lot of this research yeah. and, and you have found that in a group of fast moving companies, fast growing companies, that the uh, category queens that have developed this uh, big data flywheel as a result of educating the world proper in a, in a, in a powerful way are essentially it, worth about 5x more than other fast-growing companies. So can you kind of unpack the data science yeah. research behind the economics here? For sure. No, I mean, and, and again, you know, all we do is build on, you know, we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. So, you know, clearly, you know, how we found each other was my article, but obviously the time the market research that you you know you did and play bigger you know that six to ten year window uh, builds on that and I think it goes back to you know again that frustration that we saw and a desire to bring facts versus you know opinion to it and so what we did was um, we looked at uh, ten years worth of the fortune 100 fastest growing companies so this is a uh, a list that comes out every year by Fortune magazine. Uh, you need a minimum amount of revenue size and profitability. So you know, you're going to weed out some folks that are out there. But in general, what we saw was that uh, each year for 10 years from about 2008, uh, 2009 to 2018, 100 companies are listed as the fastest growing companies. And what we wanted to see was, could we actually no note a difference between companies that were just growing fast and those that were truly category creators and category queens as defined by as we talked about of uh, they have a great product uh, or service a great company eg a great breakthrough business model and that data flywheel <clears throat> that we were talking about and what we found was that about a fifth or so maybe a quarter like 22 percent of those companies that are on that list fit the bill and not all of them are technology companies, although a lot of them are not all of them are biotech companies but there there are a wide range of industries but the ones that we identified that were that 22%, um, they drove the lion's share of the growth of both revenue and market cap. And then when we kind of took a step back, it was like, you know, everybody knows that Wall Street is going to value growth above and beyond uh, just the dividend company. But uh, what we found was that if you were growing in a very specific way, that you had this flywheel that we were just describing, that your valuation was meaningfully higher. You got 5X uh, market cap for every dollar of revenue that was there. And so it wasn't just enough. Like, I think fast growing company is great. You know, you, you get a higher multiple uh, and you have a higher growth rate. But when you're a category queen, then not only do you have the growth rate that is not only fast now, but you can, you feel better about it going forward because of the flywheel that gives you that certainty there. But even Wall Street realizes, hey, there's something different about this company that merits um, an even bigger multiple than just your normal run-of-the-mill fast-growing company, which again is not anything but uh, is anything but normal or run-of-the-mill. But that's what we really identified. It's that um, it's it's not just that you made the NBA, but you are in the Hall of Fame, and that what we found was that there was actually a common playbook to how they got there, which was that fly that uh, that flywheel that we described, which was exciting. And, and I think, so 
awesome job on the research. Um, because I think what we've done here is connected two things that um, heretofore, for the most part, haven't been connected, certainly haven't been talked about, which is number one, I'm a company that's trying to do exponential, radically different things. And as a result, I'm creating and or designing new categories, both in the marketplace itself and with my products and business models. And, and this is the big and, I am collecting data about customers, the market, products, competitors, et cetera. And I'm doing that in a fairly organized way. And so a simple way I think about it is, you know, every, um, every time we rent something from Netflix or every time now we're not renting, we're subscribing, we are downloading a movie, we're watching a, a TV show or whatever, Netflix gets a little bit smarter about us and a little bit smarter about the marketplace. Same thing with Apple. Every time we touch our iPhone, we give Apple information about what we like to do and don't like to do. And they're able to track that big data information. And so these examples just create these massive spinning flywheels. And when you combine that with the courage to pioneer uh, radical differentiation through category creation and design, the aha that we've gotten through doing this research, at least to me, is that um, when you take category creation and, um, and, and a data flywheel and building those things concurrently, you can create a massive competitive advantage that drives a 5x multiple um, differentiation um, from your competitors. Well, and, and it, what's what's so f uh, fascinating about that, I think, is, is is you've you know I think it was you that made the comment that we wrote in the article about you know uh, data uh, being more valuable than cash, right? And and it, that I think it, you just see it bear out because you know, and you think about all the noise about big data, and you know, there, there's a really companies kind of bucket into a, a couple uh, several categories, right? There's companies that don't get it; they're not doing anything with their data, um, and so there's that. And then there are companies that um, believe that they should be doing something with big data. So they hire some data scientists and they do stuff, but they have no idea what they're doing. There, there's uh, the next tier of company are companies that are collecting data and selling it, right? And monetizing it that way, where I do think that probably has some short-termism there where, um, you know, it, it's a bit of a dicey road to go if, you know, you're, you're, you're monetizing your consumers that way, right? Or your customers that way. There's, a little bit of a, uh, a tricky line to dance. But then there are companies that are taking the data that they get from their customer's behavior, like Netflix, as you're describing, and are using it, um, I think, in a, you know, respecting people's privacy, but using it to make bigger bets on how much better the category could be. And exactly as you said about, um, I think, you know, for all the hubbub about Disney Plus and, you know, everything else, Netflix is going to be fine by and large because Disney's model is to make big bets on, you know, big blockbuster franchises with huge, you know, rosters and this and that. Whereas Netflix is probably going to moneyball their way to, you know, up and coming actors, low, lower, you know, whatever they have to be, but they don't need, um, both can be true. And I think this gets back to the examples that we have there, right, Christopher, like, you know, for all the noise about Tesla, it's, you know, they are taking the information of how people drive and using it to create a better insurance product. And you can't tell me that there are people out there who are, you know, 
I love my auto insurance company. No one says that, right? With the exception of USAA is the one that we have. Nobody loves their insurance company. And so what Tesla is doing is taking the data of how people drive to create a a more precise way of providing insurance that isn't overpriced with it. And, um, and they're doing so because they have this data, you know, one of the big, and you know, this as a, as a world-class marketer, they have no customer acquisition cost. You know, they don't spend any money marketing Tesla's as it is, which is an amazing outcome. And they don't have to spend any money marketing their insurance product and whatever else that they might do next. I mean, it, it's something that is, it's not, again, I go back to that missionary mercenary thing. They're not just trying to make money off of the data that they collect. They're trying to take that data, make something better, the current category, new categories, in a way that makes logical sense for the consumer. Well, and I would just, I would just sort of um, underscore, they're not, Tesla's not doing marketing in any traditional sense. Yes. They actually, I think, are doing marketing in the most legendary sense, which is they have a highly differentiated point of view. Yeah, of course, a radically differentiated product. And they have a CEO who is a radical evangelist. And because they have a clear point of view, which mm-hmm. their customers can parrot, they've actually driven a um, uh, word of mouth. Yes. Because we all know word of mouth. I don't know. I read this book called Super Consumers that said 10% of any market category is what drives the market category. And the way you drive that primarily is super consumers in any given space talk to each other and they drive the agenda in the space. And Mm so is it marketing in terms of buying Super Bowl ads? Fuck no. Is it marketing in terms of driving a, a, a whole new category through a point of view by enabling essentially your customers to turn into evangelists? I think that's the ultimate marketing. And so they've done that. And then the second piece that's incredible, and I only got this as we were writing this article, you know, it's, it's that Peter Drucker quote where uh, Drucker was asked towards the end of the, his career, why he kept writing and speaking. And he said, it's the only way I can know what I'm thinking. <laughs> and what, what I got as we were working on this piece together was, um, Somewhere along the line, Musk started to look at the, the, um, the Tesla vehicle the same way Apple looks at the iPhone, mm-hmm. which is this is a data, data capture device. And because data is more valuable than cash, because data is more monetizable than cash, mm-hmm. um, we're going we're gonna to have people pay to buy our data monitoring device of their behavior and we're going to catch all that data and we are going to monetize it in all sorts of ways that until you reimagine um, a car as an iPhone, you can't even think that way. Yeah. Well, and and I love it because, and I think um, part of the reason why it's so much fun to write this with you is, is um, you just got me to think like data might be the option value for future cash, right? Because, because it's essentially what he's getting at is, uh, not only your driving behavior uh, dictating an insurance product, but um, have you seen uh, he's he's uh, reinventing uh, a new you know a new category not a new category I guess but reinventing it his way uh, in car info infotainment or car for car fortainment. There's the karaoke thing that he has there, right? Where you know you can sing along in the car like James Corden and the like and stuff. But then you know he has the games that he's built into it. Um, he has that. That uh, that hilarious like fart thing where you can push a button and it sounds like somebody from one seat is farting and you're using that whole thing, 
he talked about um, uh, somebody tweeted at him about like I want uh, multi-directional horns. He's like done, and not only that, you'll be able to not only honk in multi-direction so that you can communicate to the drivers around you, but it'll just be car honks and goat bleats and other things and more fart noises and whatnot. And I think he's talked about like his desire is to maximize the most amount of fun that you can have in a car. And well, he's obviously been reading our buddy Joe Pine's work, right? right. Because <laughs> he's reimagined. If you say the yeah. car is about, uh, it's a vehicle and it's yeah. about getting places and it's about getting places in a fun way or getting places in a fast way or getting places in a safe way or, you know, the traditional sort of paradigm. But if you go, Hey, wait a minute, no, no, no. The car is a platform for experience applications that deliver radical transformations and outcomes. If you think about it that way, then all of a sudden, yeah, there's fart apps in the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know what, 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 I, what I find, um, it's funny that you mentioned about Joe Pine, because um, I, I think, in, you know, and, and he's just re-released his book, right? So it's, it's the, the whole, you know, you know, commodities, goods, products, services, experiences, and the transformation at the top, which, you know, very much syncs with what we talk about. Like, you know, what, what's hilarious to me is I've done enough kind of general grocery CPG work to know where when you have family dynamics, one of the things that drives what people buy about grocery products is the desire to have a, a family dinner, a sit down dinner, which is like nearly impossible now because people are snacking and moving around. And what's driving that desire for a sit down family dinner? It's family togetherness, right? And then what the truth of the matter is, is that um, what I hear constantly over and over again is that so many parents will talk about the best quality time they get is in the car with the kids, driving them to sports things, driving them to whatever tournaments and stuff. It's like, it's the only time that they'll get um, where they're, you know, everybody's trapped in the same place. And, you know, maybe you're on your phone, but eventually conversations happen and stuff. And so for all I know, Musk has figured out that the, the transformation that he's trying to get to is not just energy independence and a, a fun driving experience, but, you know, it, it makes people want to spend time in the car. And if you can get like, you know, as a father of teenagers, like get your teens and hang out with you in the car, like that's a pretty transformational outcome that you can get uh, from that standpoint, which, you know, who knows where he's going with it. But I do think that's an interesting idea. And so the aha for me in all of this is, okay, so regardless of whether we're a local pizza parlor or we're trying to build um, the next Amazon, if we want to dominate, design and dominate the category, we've got to build a data flywheel. Yep. And so, and I think the thing that Musk is teaching us is the car is a data captured device. Mm -hmm. And so sort of, I want to get your reaction. If you were advising whether it was a Fortune 500 CEO or a startup founding team, marketing team, whatever it was, and you say, okay, how do we begin to uh, um, completely reimagine what we're delivering such that we can begin to create this data flywheel as part of our product or part of our service? How, how would you want me to think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it to me, it goes back to what you described before about um, you know, if, if everything is a data capture, that's one of the reasons why you, you invest like, like Musk is in his product, right? You make it the most different, the most awesome product that you can have so that people want to spend time with it. You're super consumers, right? And that they're going to provide you data uh, about their behavior and what they want next in a way that is just magical. Like the other example 
that we have in there with hydrofacial, right? And I know your, your, your wife, Carrie, is a big fan of them. And like, I mean, this is a, uh, one of the things that I just think is so radically different is in the beauty category and personal care, so much of it is just hope in a bottle that probably doesn't work, but you're just preying upon people's desires to stay youthful and, you know, look young. And this is a bit of medical technology uh, combined with expert estheticians. So there's a business model aspect to it um, that delivers this wand that sucks the blackheads out of your face in 30 minutes or less. And, and you literally come out glowing. Like I, I know I've had them done. My wife is like, every time you go speak, you got to get a hydrofacial before. And I'm like, okay, now I, now I know how to get, when I, when I need to get them and stuff. But like the glow. If you're me, you're so ugly. Hydrofacial <laughs> or not. It just, it, you, you, you look like Quasimodo. It's over. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, you, you, well, not everybody has the regenerative glow that you have just naturally in the life. How about that? <laughs> but like, I, I think, I think this idea of when you actually have something that works in a sea of promises and hope in a bottle, that's going to stand out. Right. And um, that's why they're growing so quickly with it. But I, I think to this point about the, the, the data that they're uh, generating and capturing, I just think it's so fascinating. And it's a combination of both the product and the service where, you know, you can see literally in a vial that comes afterwards, this facial, the gunk that came out of your face. Who would have thought that gunk and dead skin and oil and blackheads would be data? That's data, right? Because these super consumers are like, wait, did I have more gunky come out this time versus the last time? Because I changed my routine with my foundation or my skincare or my exfoliant. And, you know, th these people are kind of going bonkers, just, just like in the same way that um, uh, a high-performance athlete or a mixed martial artist is like, what did I do to my training or my diet that is causing me to, you know, perform better or worse in a different way? That's the whole idea is that these people are just, you know, um, on a crazy quest to get their skin, the best skin of their life. And they're going to look for not just the gunk. They're going to say, hey, esthetician, what do you see? How do I look? My face, month one versus month seven. And, um, and then the other bit of it is this geography part that's so fascinating, this, this idea of super geography is where... Um, the markets where hydrofacial is off the charts, these you know local zip codes, is predictive and highly correlated with other categories. This whole idea in my book I wrote about super consumer one category is super of nine, right? Is that they're sitting on this treasure map of I know where my product is hot at a zip code level. And that probably means that every other skincare brand and personal care product and medical aesthetic uh, service treatment that's out there that wants to know where the demand is hot, they're going to know where it is. And that, that data is gold to your point. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it's, an, it's so the aha here is a company that could have thought of themselves as a facial company, but instead, because they're trying to build a category queen business, radical differentiation on product and they're capturing data, which they can now monetize in all these other ways. And that's the big piece, right? And it's a little bit akin to Amazon buying Whole Foods. It's like, well, why do they want to be in that business? Well, I don't know. Maybe the reason they want to be in that business has very little to do with that business and a lot to do with now they have a database of almost every high net worth uh, home in the United States of America yes. and yes. what's that worth. Or another example, we didn't write about this in the article either, but you know, why does Microsoft buy LinkedIn? Mm -hmm. I think Microsoft buys LinkedIn because they now have a living database of 
almost every white collar knowledge worker in the Western world and what's going on in their career, which gives them an insight into uh, where knowledge work is going that their competitors don't have. And that's going to be a big driver of their flywheel, which is then going to be a big driver of their category queen totally. positions. Well, I, I love those. Those examples are great because I would suspect that both Amazon and Microsoft, you know, probably didn't fully appreciate or know in full uh, to the fullest extent exactly what Whole Foods and LinkedIn was going to deliver. But to your point, they were prescient enough to say, you know what, these are really high engagement, high value consumers, these super consumers, high net worth from a Whole Foods standpoint, people on LinkedIn, I mean, you know, whether it's influencers or job seekers or people who are just trying to, you know, um, you know, like I view LinkedIn as one of the really great outcomes for social media. Like a lot of social media is not that useful and very destructive. I view LinkedIn as actually quite helpful. It's a learning. LinkedIn, for all I know, might be the Harvard of the next century, right? Because you got people like you sharing all the nuggets that they have for free. And, um, you know, uh, you know, you saw that, uh, I saw no, that recently, uh, business school applications are down. You know, ah, I didn't see like, that. That's if that's, yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, I, I don't know if it's a blip or a trend, but what I do know is that higher education, um, enrollment peaked, uh, colleges in the U S peaked in 2010 and that there are uh, a million fewer college students in 2015 than there were in 2010. So I think we've hit peak higher education. And folks like Clay Christensen are saying one in two colleges are going to go under because of enrollment uh, declines. Uh, you have education debt, uh, you know, through the roof. It's, it's probably a big bubble that's going to be a real problem and the like. And, you know, uh, what is the value of LinkedIn if Microsoft is like, you know what, am I buying a social media platform or am I buying the next generation of Harvard or in the next generation of influencers that um, will not maybe... I know, I don't know yet exactly how they're going to inform how I should reinvent office, but, you know, office 365, pretty good, you know, uh, people to, to sell into and market to uh, on LinkedIn, I would think with that. So, I mean, I, I haven't seen anything about how much LinkedIn has contributed to their amazing transformation to a software as a service in a cloud company, but um, if they haven't, it's not hurting. Yet, it's not hurting at all. Absolutely. It's a data flywheel insight into everything everyone's doing in their career. It's a it's it's just a fascinating new data flywheel, never mind new category queen yeah. position to add to their portfolio. Well, and I also think last one, one more comment on this is that um, for Amazon and Microsoft or and in any existing category queen, this is what I would tell them if you know if I look into the camera and say to them, is that you know, LinkedIn and 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 uh, Whole Foods, it's an early warning system. Right for that canary in the coal mine, because like if I have uh, if I'm Microsoft and I'm doing 360 Office 365, and I've LinkedIn, I should be able to figure out if Google Spreadsheets is going to be a real threat or not. With it, you know, you're going to see the early warning signs of like, oh crap, somebody new has come out. Is is Slack going to be you know a big thing? Like, and that that's the thing that I've always found on the B 2 C side is that every disruptive innovation that's happened, you could have predicted and seen coming eight years earlier. If you had just looked at these types of data, these, these super consumers and these super geographies of where are my most engaged, most valuable consumers doing? What are they buying? Where are they deviating in their behavior? And if I can see that and I can use that to scale it up, then I can anticipate every major disruption and buy them or get ahead of them uh, years in advance. 
it's fascinating and i think it's something we have to all watch and the sort of idea that's been rolling around in my head you talked about it earlier is are we now living in a world where data is more valuable than cash and i think it may be outrageous to some but i think we can say that is now true well, I, I think also, you know, the the good to your point about it, like I've been thinking about this uh, ever since you, you mentioned that in, in the article is like, um, you know, that classic marketing myopia, you know, article from HBR, right? You know, you're not in the train business, you're in the transportation business, you don't want a quarter inch drill, but you want a quarter inch hole. I actually think to your point, the reason why data is more valuable than cash is that um, your products uh, generate cash today to partially solve problems that consumers have this kind of predictive category data tells you how much it gets you that much closer. It's almost the bridge from a quarter inch drill bit to a quarter inch hole, because that data is going to tell you, yeah, you know what? It got me a quarter of the way there, but you need to do X, Y, and Z more for me to really fully realize what my, my, uh, my, my, my quest is right. I mean, so that's why, I mean, I know Musk has gotten really hammered for this acquisition of solar city and the like and stuff. And you know, there's a lot of to do there, but you know, it's not hard to see a future where uh, a Tesla super consumer is totally grid free, right? I got power off my panels can't tell because it looks beautiful. I got my multiple Teslas. I got whatever. Um, and, and I freed up all this money from uh, fuel maintenance and, and insurance to spend on whatever else they do next with it, right? I mean, this, this ability to, I don't have to pay for customer acquisition. I can anticipate and reduce the risk of innovation and in, in, in acquisition for now I don't know what to need to go next to. I mean, you talk about... Um, uh, I think we use the phrase, this predictive data greases the flywheel. I mean, you know, as, as, as I had a friend who told me he was doing a deep fried uh, uh, turkey for Thanksgiving, you know, that oil really matters there. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, how about we kick out, Eddie? <laughs> Great. Thank you, brother. This has been fantastic. I look forward to having you back soon. Thanks, man. Take care, Christopher. There he is, my buddy, Eddie Yoon, um, the incredible author of Super Consumers. All right, we would like to thank Eddie himself. Why not pick up a copy of his book, Super Consumers, wherever you get legendary books. The good folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLive.org. Also want to let you know to check out Lockhead, uh, Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, for our recent episode with Joe Pine on the reissuing of the 20th anniversary of his legendary book, The Experience Economy. Check that out. Christopher Lockhead, follow your different. Now, are you trying to um, scale yourself? Then why not check out my friends at bottleneck.online and check out the power of a virtual assistant. That's bottleneck.online. And if you're in Silicon Valley in the B2B space, my friends at Atranet have been building powerful B2B websites, corporate websites in Silicon Valley for about 25 years. Check out atre.net. And if you're in Australia, my friends at Rapid Media do legendary marketing in Australia for media and communications. Check out rapidmedia.com.au. And the thought I'll leave you with today comes from the legendary, the OG himself, Al Reese, who said, most marketing... Most marketing mistakes (laughs) stem from the assumption that you are fighting a product battle rooted in reality. All right. Thank you so much uh, for the uh, gift of your time. I really do appreciate it. 
And until next time, of course, stay legendary and follow your difference.